All righty. Welcome to another edition of our Four Questions Journalist Spotlight. And uh, we are talking with Bill Crane, and I, I can't think of a better a better guest to have, uh, you know, 10 days before what is probably the biggest election most of us have, have seen in a generation. Uh, welcome, Bill. Good to be here, Mitch. Thank you for the invitation. So you are you are a prolific you are you are on radio you're on tv you're in print you're online but give us a little background what tell us about what you're doing now and kind of how you got to where you are and let's we can talk about the the media journalism side and the uh the pr work that you do as well i'm a native atlanta i was born what was crawford long now i'm in midtown grew up in a newspaper family in Decatur. i'm in offices now near the cab farmers market on the the cab industrial way about a mile from what were the newspaper plants. Uh, we had seven weeklies when I grew up in DeCab, Clayton, Fayette, Henry, and South Bolton. Um, and I grew up and learned Atlanta and politics going to events when campaigns really all used to start on the 4th of July. And I went because of the fireworks. I loved the fireworks. But I met Max Cleland when I was a kid, who I later worked for as a press secretary. I got to meet then State Senator Bob Bell, who ran for governor in 1982. That was the first campaign I actually worked on. Um, and so my interest in politics and history sort of came from my grandmother, who was one of the two publishers of the newspaper. My grandfather was the chairman of the Department of Family and Children's Services in DeKalb County, volunteer gig, publisher of the newspaper. And he wrote a column for 25 years, which we'll come back to in a minute, called One Man's Opinion. Um, I went to the University of Georgia. I'm a dog. I uh, have served for a decade or so on the Grady College Journalism's Board of Trustees. I live in Scottsdale, Georgia. I have two daughters. And I, I left a global firm, not where you and I met. You and I met um, a few, couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of decades ago. And, but we worked together at the GCI group. And I left GCI in 2008 when my younger child, who Olivia has Down syndrome was born. There were some challenges, um, and I didn't feel like the travel that that those national agencies require of us was the best thing for my child or my family. So I opened up my own firm, CSI Crane, in 2009. Um, so we've been around for 11 years, and our offices are indicator. Um, I've got several people who work with and for us as contractors, and then you know Bill Marks, who uh, you and I work with at GCI. He and I have several clients together right now. And we're uh, spitting distance, if you will, from kind of midpoint between the Avondale Marta Station and the, the Cab Farmers Market in terms of where. Um, I've got clients in the private sector and the public sector. I've got a couple that are on NDA. We do a lot of crisis management and increasingly a good bit more social media and uh, video production. Those have been in demand, particularly since the pandemic. Um, and I would expect will probably remain so. So talk to us about kind of where you are reporting and writing now from a political side. I'm the chief political analyst for WSB radio and television, Action News. Um, I contribute to other Cox media group radio stations across the country. And for those who listen to WGAU in Athens, I'm a regular guest there with Tim Bryan on his show. I've been allowed by WSB to also contribute to Georgia Public Broadcasting and the lawmakers. And with WDUN radio up in uh, Gainesville area, and particularly Martha Zoller's morning news show. In print, all the, uh, that, that covers television. I haven't done as much work as I did 
earlier in my political commentary, but I have contributed to CNN, primarily CNN International and Al Jazeera, interestingly enough, but they um, have not been as aggressive these last few years tapping talent that are not part of their network. Um, I wrote a column for Georgia Trend Magazine, a business monthly for not quite a decade. And since 2009, I've had a weekly column, uh, 600 columns in at this point, about halfway to my grandfather's mark. I named my column One Man's Opinion after Bud's column. And I appear uh, weekly in dailies, the Brunswick News, starting next week, the Clayton News Daily, the Henry Herald, Rockdale Citizen and, and Newton Citizens, which are both dailies, and then about 40 other weekly and web and radio outlets across the state. The only place right now I've got a complete blind spot, but hopefully will change with the Albany Herald joining us, is down in the a boot of Southwest Georgia. So, and I think uh, you're, in, you're in the champion too, right? The champion in DeKalb County and it's, it's a sister publication the Champion Free Press, which has been suspended by the pandemic because all of its distribution locations either closed or took their news boxes away, um, have been the legal organ in sister paper since 1996. And Doc and Carolyn Glenn essentially created the column. I was talking about my grandfather with them at a Georgia Press Association Better Newspaper Awards banquet in uh, 2008 and telling stories of my grandfather, who was quite a colorful guy. And Carolyn Glenn said, you know, you ought to write a book. And I said, that takes a lot of time. And she said, well, then you ought to write a column. And I said, well, that takes a lot of time too. You, I'm gonna need somebody to pay me. She said, I'll pay you. So that's how the column got started. And about a year after that, I had written a column about the water wars and the two different kinds of law in the United States that govern property rights and water, which are specifically old English common law down along the East Coast and East of the Mississippi and riparian water rights, which are a little bit different, that are more about common use on the west of the Mississippi side of the country. And there was a decision that was overturned that I was actually writing about. And I said, the judge had used the wrong law. He had used riparian water law of the west coast, like the Colorado River's divided. Los Angeles is, has water because the Colorado River. Las Vegas has water because the Colorado River. Lake Mead, et cetera. Um, and I, that was just my observation reading the decisions. And so Neely Young, who used to be a newspaper man, but by then was a magazine publisher and who lost the legal organ battle in DeKalb County, called and said, where, where did you go to law school? And I was like, I didn't go to law school. I just read. So he said, well, would you be willing to write a business column? And then about a year after that, the court's decision was overturned. And I was very pleased, not that, that the judge saw my column, but that he said that the original decision was flawed because it was based on the wrong water law. It was not East Coast common law or English common law as prevalent on the East Coast. It was West Coast law. So how, how has uh, this pandemic changed how you gather, gather information and how you do your work? Are, are you on set? Are you in studio? Or are you pretty much doing it all remotely? Depending on which piece of this we're talking about. So TV, I used to go into Channel 2, usually between 4 and 6 o'clock two or three times a month uh, on set. And I have a fixed window that was then 6.35 p.m. in the show that they teased to and that most of their political coverage goes to. And then there's news reporters that wrap around what I do, which is analysis and thing. Um, that segment spot is still there, but usually I'm sitting right here, a little closer 
to that bookshelf back there. Yep. We've got we've got lights here in the oh, very nice uh, in the office. And I pull a chair over there, and uh, like you, I have a backdrop that's not as snazzy as your um, banner behind you, but similarly, I've got the little CSI Crane typewriter back there. So I'm against that wall, and probably once a week now, because of the time we're in for the election, we do a remote from here. What's interesting is radio didn't make those protocol changes. So tomorrow night, and after the debates, and most of the time when it's me on radio at night, I'm in the station. And then in the mornings and other times of day, I have a couple of these, and, and there's a software called Clean Feed, which cleans up the muck and makes it sound like I'm in the studio, although I'm not, and I do radio commentary from either here or home. Yeah, and I, I understand that WSB Radio is kind of working on kind of a skeleton crew, as, as few people as they can have in the, in the studios they can get away with, I guess, right? They have, I would, you know, different times of the day it's staffed differently traffic is heavy in the morning and then the newsroom is heavier later in the day in the afternoon but at any given time probably three to four people in the newsroom between traffic and the regular news department and of course there's shifts so, I mean, is it has it has it affected uh, you know your ability to to deliver what you need to deliver i mean it seems like you're you're busier than ever i mean it, it's changed the logistics but it really hasn't changed either the product or what I do because typically with the columns, I'm trying to come up with topics and write them one and two weeks out because of the nature of getting them out. I distribute them myself Sunday and Monday to the syndicate um, for radio, which is much more breaking oriented. Um, really the only difference is the location. Uh, I know things have changed a little bit in the newsroom because they don't send reporters out anymore. So if it, it doesn't come into them either over the wire or over the phone. Very seldom that they'll physically send a reporter to a location. In TV, similarly, you've, you've interviewed several broadcast reporters. If they go to a story, they are 12 feet away from their subject. And most right. government meetings that you would used to cover in person are now all via Zoom. So the, probably the biggest change professionally is how many hours I spend on this platform right here each week, yeah. including clients. Um, which I would, I prefer when possible to be in person. And, you know, if we need to sit far enough apart to take the masks off, I just, this is good what we're doing right here, but it's not the same as you and I breaking bread or having lunch or, you know, in person. It's, it's like right, a right. call with pictures. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get back to that. Oh, I know. I know. I'm not, I'm not at all worried that we will at some point have this election over, thank God, and normalcy <laughs> return to our world. Well, the election has got to be over by January 20th at, at, at some point, right? The Constitution says the Electoral College has to meet on December the 12th. So we will have a constitutional crisis if we don't have enough state electoral votes determined for one of the two to have 270 electoral votes when the college meets. There, have, there is precedent, and there may be situations where electoral colleges or balloting at the state level are in dispute. You probably know this, but in case your, your viewers and listeners don't, not every state awards electoral votes the same way. Some apportioned by congressional district and how the results occur in those districts. Some apportioned by a percentage of popular votes. So let's say it's not the way California is by congressional district, but let's say Georgia, which is a winner-take-all state, chose to change it, and they apportion electoral votes based on who won congressional districts. That can make both forecasting and the actual tabulation 
of the college a bit more challenging. Um, and of course, the closest election we've had in recent history was George Herbert, George W. Bush beating Al Gore by a single vote. He got 271 electoral votes and a five vote spread between his position and Al Gore's. How, how, I'm trying to remember, how long did those legal challenges go on? <laughs> so almost Thanksgiving. Um, Florida had really three counties, Palm, Dade, and Broward counties that had substantial issues on election day with the butterfly ballots, with the hanging chads. Hanging chads, yeah. All three, of, <laughs> and that's how we got away from paper ballots. But all three of those um, jurisdictions were recounted. The margin in the initial count was like 900 votes. And with recounting towards the end, Miami-Dade's Board of Election Supervisors, Little Rick Holding, those punch <clears> cards <throat> up to the light to determine how fully the pen had tried to push through, uh, particularly in that presidential race, because you had um, Ralph Nader running as the Green Party candidate. Had he not been on the ballot, Al Gore would have won Florida, we would assume, because most people who would vote for the Green Party candidate would not have voted for the Republican. So, um, and, you know, and I don't think it's appropriate to try to interpret voter intent. It's not clear to me that ballot should be discarded. But the Florida Supreme Court kept siding with the recounts, which were continuing, and eventually the U.S. Supreme Court, by a one-vote margin, interceded and stopped the recount. And when they did that, George Bush's margin in the state had shrunk to about 550 votes. Florida was awarded, as were the winner-take-all electoral college delegates. And that that allowed uh, or caused Al Gore to finally concede the election. Yeah, I, I have my own uh, preference for, for the winner, but I would almost prefer that this be a landslide one way or another so we don't have a constitutional crisis. I would, too. I would very much prefer that for lots of reasons, but... I can't in any way believe that's going to happen. There will be there will be individual states because this is actually fifty elections that will be landslides for both candidates. Right, but, right, yeah. Um, the delegate count and the electoral count. I believe we will have several things that will keep us up all of election night, but for days and possibly weeks later, the the landslide or tsunami of mail-in votes. Um, the sheer turnout that's not just record setting here in Georgia, but across the country um, and multiple states that allow ballots to be received and then tabulated as late as seven days after the election. Georgia is not one of those states, right. but Georgia is a state where there's an appeal underway to extend that deadline, which is now 7 p.m. on election day for absentees to three days after. And uh, the reason I don't think that will be successful on appeal, and I think the Democratic Party will change their approach next time, is that only applies to 17 of Georgia's 159 counties. And the Republican Party and the Secretary of State argued that that was two standards for balloting. Right, right, yeah, I agree. Made a distinction in one man, one vote, making essentially <laughs> metro votes count more. So, so we had to get through November 3rd and then some – Senate uh, runoffs that'll take us into January, right? December 12th is when the Electoral College meets, and I believe the runoff is the first or second week of January. And I'm pretty sure, well, I, I'll say with certainty, the, the open primary race will be in runoff. But if both Georgia seats are in runoffs, um, which would probably mean Joe Biden had a good day and won Georgia, if Joe Biden wins Georgia, 
looks likely he'd win Florida. If the vice president wins Georgia and Florida, I don't see a path for Donald Trump to the White House. So yeah. um, it will be interesting having been involved in a few elections and a, and a statewide Senate runoff to see after that what we have in the streets and whose voters are more uh, motivated to show back up for that runoff election. Right. All right. So, so we get through that, and then, then what are we going to do after, after the end of January? What, what, then, what are you, then what are you working on? With all that uh, after we have a new Congress and a new White House, um, I've, I've, we've got a very nice, stable group of clients. Uh, just mentioning a few. We're for the city of Brookhaven, Georgia. We're producing videos that will be on YouTube. Three of them will be up in the next couple of weeks, featuring all of the 15 parks and trails, um, and green spaces and recreation centers that the city of Brookhaven has either had historically or improved or with a bond referendum significantly enhanced like Murphy Candler Park and Osborne Park and Blackburn Park and the Peach Street Creek Greenway. Um, we're doing some ongoing work with the Morehouse School of Medicine right now is launching clinical trials um, targeting uh, underserved communities, but also those at most risk for COVID, senior citizens and those with uh, compromising pre-existing medical conditions. I would note that, or should note that, with one exception, and it's in Europe, every vaccine that the United States is doing clinical trials with do not have live virus. Uh, most flu vaccines and most vaccines you and I are accustomed with, the childhood boosters we used to get for germ and measles and rubella and other things, those boosters have a small amount of either live or dead virus to cause our immune system to more quickly create immunities to that virus because of the high risk of COVID uh, spreading quickly and doing significant damage. That's not the way these pharma companies are approaching it. And they're instead trying to create synthetic and real proteins that the body will create or already has and create in greater abundance to consume, attack, or kill COVID-19. And uh, one of two of those pharmaceutical companies and trials will be administered at two sites in Atlanta by um, Morehouse and four by Emory Healthcare. So we've got stuff that's already on the books, thankfully, as you're, you're self-employed, well into 2021. And having been in different recession, um, that's a good place to be. That's good. That's good. All right. So, so now we get to the really hard question. This is the hardest question. What is the coolest thing about Bill Crane? I just had, or my family just had twin grandsons. I haven't met them yet. Uh, I got word just before you and I got on the phone that they are identical twins, but they're not the same size. And one of them has had some minor medical issues there at Northside Hospital's Lawrenceville campus. But Callan, who's the larger of the two, may be home within 24 to 48 hours. They were born a month ago yesterday. And the smaller uh, Carter of the two will probably be there closer to his actual due date, which was November the 18th or possibly Thanksgiving. But I'm very much looking forward to meeting uh, my grandsons and going by the name of my grandfather, hopefully, if I can teach them. But um, I also think your uh, viewers and some of our friends might appreciate knowing that I occasionally do impressions ah. that, aren't all, that aren't all that good. Well, as Jim McCullough would say, uh, you can't win if you don't win them. So I try to inject a little politics humor with ha-has and, and my ahas together in the columns and the radio commentary that I do, because I learned a long time ago that if you can wed memories with different parts of your brains, music, smells, laughs, it tends to stick. And if things stick, 
there's more likelihood that people will give it some thought. And perhaps every now and again, I might persuade some. I don't recall hearing any of these impressions on WSB TV lately. They don't like them as much on TV, but the radio guys like them. So I, I roll them in. I, I broke out of Richard Dixon uh, the other day. And, and, and I, they, seem, I seem to recall you did some performing in, the, in your younger years. They don't was have Cracker Fumble anymore. I love yeah. that. Uh, the what, what, was, what was what was that uh, troupe you were a part of? Well, the Cracker Crumble was the cast, and it was it's an annual show that used to benefit the Georgia Press Association's Educational Foundation, and it used to be an annual fundraiser um, for the GPEF at the Georgia World Congress Center. And then they took us on the road, so we went to Macon and Madison County and other places, and all of it went to play for scholarships for future journalists, which is what the GPEF <clears throat> exists for. But um, they stopped doing that, and, and it was very logistically challenging event, and a lot of time for the staff. And we were ending up spending about, I think it was twenty thousand dollars to raise fifty or sixty. So they started doing golf tournaments and some other things yeah. that were a little easier to put on, but it was a lot of fun. All right, so a couple other questions. So, last book that you read that you want to talk that you want to admit publicly? Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. And that, oh, I love that book. Great movie. That, uh, went two of my genres. I love horror and zombies and vampires and political science and history and political fiction. And have it you is. Seen, you saw the movie? I have not seen the movie yet. I want to see it before I see you it. See the movie's really good. All right. Favorite Atlanta restaurant? Roasters is where I probably recommend and eat most. It's a meat and three kind of place with really good vegetables. But when somebody else is paying, chops. Uh, Roasters, is that the one on Lennox? Yes, Lennox there's two. There's, yes. there's one in Sandy Springs, and it's under the same owner, but the one on Lennox Road near the mall is the bomb. Okay. And they have a patio, so you can right. eat right. there now in the pandemic. Yeah, that we go to, there's a great sushi place right next to them that we really like. All right, favorite guilty pleasure? Yogurt-covered pretzels. Good, good. Sweet and, sweet and salty. All right. Uh, favorite local getaway? Where do you like to go? Stone Mountain Park is probably where I go the most because there's so much to do there. The disclosure, they also are a client. There is just a lot to do there. And spending a lot of time, I live on the path trail, but just spending a lot of time biking and other things on the trails, the, the original path trail, the Silver Comet, the Beltline, and now the PCG, probably more than anything. And then just hangout spot, which isn't really getaway. There's a place called the Imperial Indicator that's uh, on College Street that has a big patio. Okay. And uh, favorite non-work hobby? Yoga. Yoga, okay. How long have you been doing that? 20 years. Okay. Um, I was up to, before the pandemic, six practices a week. I'm down to about three now because most studios are not open, but the studio that I use in Decatur, a place called Form, is reopening election week. Not sure how many days I'll get in there, but <laughs> I'm going to try to start going back four and five days a week. It, it, it clears my head and uh, gets the stress out of my body, particularly if I do it at the beginning or end of the day, and makes me nicer. Makes you nicer. That, I'm sure your friends will appreciate that. And yeah, you, you see, remember the <laughs> furrowed brow that you've always given me crap about? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't furrow anymore, and there is Botox there, but it doesn't furrow as much as it used to. Very good. All right, we've been talking with Bill Crane. Bill, thank you for thanks for your time this week, and uh, we will be back next week for another edition of our Four Questions Journalist Spotlight. Take care.